0: i standing for the reading of the text from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33 through verse 37, as we now hear the word of God this morning. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say unto you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, nor it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we need your Spirit this day to give us the discernment that only He can give to us. We pray you would open up our minds and hearts that we would receive this word with gladness, and that we might rightly understand the word and that I might rightly be able to deliver it and rightly divide it. So we pray for your Spirit to now teach us these things and apply it to our lives to make us more like Jesus in every part of our character and life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We need to understand what Jesus is doing here and be reminded that the Sermon on the Mount is expressing a life and character of those who are in the kingdom. It is not a new set of ethics that he is giving to us, nor is it a a method by which we are to obey in order to become those of the kingdom, but it is a characteristic. It is a character of the kingdom that he is describing to us, a character that far surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and a character of perfection that must be uh, true of all of those in the kingdom. And that is a perfection and a character of which no man in his fallen state can achieve, can live, can be. So it is not something that we can achieve. It is not something that we merit. It is the righteous character of what God is making us to be in Jesus Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is not an ethic in order to enter, but rather the ethic of the kingdom. It is true for all true and genuine believers, and it cannot be true for anyone who does not have the Spirit of God in him. In fact, it can only be true of true Christians because it is the description and the ethic here that is quite impossible for man to adhere to in his flesh. There's something, the Spirit of God, which is working. And yet, even when we find ourselves falling short of these ideals, these perfections, it is that toward which the Spirit is directing us and growing us. And like the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is true in every Christian, and yet we are still all growing in the graces as the Spirit of God works in us and through us. So it is important to understand what Jesus is teaching in order that we might grow in our dependence upon the Lord and His Spirit and what He is doing in our lives and bringing forth this character in greater glory. This is the direction in which He's leading our personal lives, our corporate life, the kingdom life. When we come to this fourth of the six clarifications or illustrations of God's law, Jesus reveals the character of truth and integrity. This is an area that the world does not know. It is an area in the world that they are not genuine. And yet it is a characteristic that should be growing in every one of the true believers in Christ. From last Lord's Day, we might recall that Jesus is not, what he is not doing is suggesting that all oaths and vows are bad. And to understand this, we have to see this against the backdrop of the scriptures in their entirety and also the abuse in which the Pharisees were teaching and interpreting and living out. As just a way of a quick reminder, the vows and the oaths are part of a covenantal structure of the Christian life and the culture of the Bible. We can't avoid vows and oaths if we are to be a true Christian. In fact, it is the the character of God himself to take oaths and vows. God vowed never to flood the earth again, and he never has. Hannah vowed to God that if she ever bore a son, that she would give him to the Lord. He did, and she did. A Nazarite vow was something that was specifically ordained and specified by God, and Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist were under this particular vow for life. David vowed not to give himself any rest, Until he found a house for God, and God so richly blessed that vow that He turned it around and blessed David with a dynasty. Vows were of free will offerings were something that were specified, and God gave a very special offering called the free will offering by which people can take vows. Paul took a vow to show his conformity to the Jewish custom of the day so that we can see that taking vows and making oaths were something very much a part of the covenantal structure of the Bible. In fact, they were even commanded in Scripture. But those who took vows and made vows were to do so very carefully according to how the Scripture regulated them. Once a vow was made, it was binding. And the Scripture warns against making rash vows. It even says it would be better not to ever take a vow than to take a vow and not pay it. Good intentions in paying a vow are not good enough. Execution and faithfully delivering on that vow is what is required. So be careful. Vows were an indication, however, of piety and faithfulness of God's people. Oaths and vows were used sometimes to confirm one's truthfulness and faithfulness. It was to demonstrate something of an integrity of the heart and a desire and a longing to show a veracity in a particular context. And that's sometimes important to do when we live in a world that is dominated by lies, which is characterized by falsehood. This world system is a world or a system that is so characterized and governed by a leadership in the demonic world and that has power over people's lives and over leadership and over governments and over systems that it works with deception. And that is part of the power of the enemy that even the elect would believe the deceptions of the evil one if God had not cut the day short. See? Ephesians 2 tells us that wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now worketh in the children of disobedience. Those who are not in Christ, who have not been regenerated by the spirit of truth, are still under the power of the wicked one, which is a sway of deception that their hearts themselves cannot discern because their own wicked hearts are deceptive and sick above all things. that is why in Ephesians 6, in this spiritual warfare that we're in, it declares that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of this darkness and against spiritual weakness or spiritual wickedness in high places. When Jesus was talking to the Jews in John chapter 8, as he begins to this particular discourse when he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they began to recoil and rebound against that, saying, we've not been in bondage to anyone. And he began to express to them sin and him and truth and what. They declared, but we're father, we're the children of Abraham. And he turns it around and says, you know, you are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. And he says, and you are his children. In 1 John 5, 19, it says, and as we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness and under the sway of that wicked one. This world is a world that is characterized by falsehood and cheating and lies and hypocrisy and because it is under the, the power of the father of those things. That is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 it says, And if our gospel be hid, it be hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the mind of them so that they do not believe. this world and the systems that make it up. When we talk about the world, we're talking about a system and systems that make up this world into such that is governed and overseen by the power of a wicked one that lies invisibly behind it all, which is an antithesis to God and His kingdom. That's why we are commanded not to love the world this system which is governed by the wicked one. And if we do have that love in us, the love of the Father is not in us. These are antithetical loves. Now this particular world and the system upon which it is built in this this framework of lies and hypocrisy makes it hard for people to believe the very words that people speak to us. We all have trust problems because of this. We live in a world that's full of lies and hypocrisy and cheating and deceptions and deviations and scheming and false accusations and false witnesses and false representations of what is actually true. We have communication problems with one another because of this. This is the world out of which we came. This is the world that shaped us. This is the nature of who we were, children of disobedience, just children that were full of lies. When we were born with this state of sin in which we were born, we go away from the birth speaking lies. We were born liars because that's what is true about our fallen state. Now, when there is especially something that's trying to be communicated or affirmed, and when there is no evidence to support that affirmation, oaths were employed to declare and affirm the truthfulness or the trustworthiness of one's word. That's still true today. That's why the court puts you under oath when you go into the witness stand. That's exactly what happened when the Sanhedrin took Jesus and his trial and they put him under oath. There were false witnesses that would come against him, but even those false witnesses could not support their claim. They couldn't show the evidence for what they believed. And so finally, the high priest put Jesus under oath in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, and it says, But Jesus kept silent. And all this time, these false accusations were hurled against him. He said not a word. He opened not his mouth. And the high priest answered him, saying, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. Well, that was, that was clear that was plain. And he now opens his mouth for the first time while under oath, declaring and affirming what the high priest just made very clear for the first time. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. the Lord himself was willing to take an oath to affirm the truthfulness of what he proclaimed, what he had been proclaiming, what he had been saying all along, and what was, in fact, true. When all the evidences were standing the other way, he was declaring and affirming under oath now what was real. And so when the Lord appeared to Abraham in order to help Abraham trust in him in this fallen world. In order to convince Abraham, who was used to lies, deceit, and deception, he swore an oath to Abraham. And in that day, the oath was the end of all question. And since there was nothing greater to swear by, God God swore it by himself. So oaths and vows were used to amplify the credibility of a claim or a promise so that others would trust in what was being said. Now, there is some of the backdrop that we need to have in order to come into this text to know that what Jesus was not saying is he was not saying we should never take oaths or vows. The Lord himself took a vow, willingly. When he was before silent, he finally spoke, and he did so only when he was under the oath. Now, God is a God of truth, and when he calls his people to himself, he saves them from this present, sinful, cheating, lying world, and he calls them to the truth. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, the truth is something we need to embrace, we need to love, we cherish it, It is that by which we are saved, it is that which leads us to Christ, it is that by which we are sanctified, it is that which frees us and liberates us. And we live in a world of lies and deception and idols are calling out over here. Oh, over here is pleasure. Over here is fame. Over here is good. And these are just lies in our hearts that are deceptive. We'll often believe the very things and we find that when we entertain those matters, they are lies. And yet another one calls out. And and so we, from lie to lie, begin to believe them when we find ourselves on this endless journey. And yet it is the truth that will set you free. Never be afraid of the truth. But there is a pragmatic use of vows and oath in the Christian religion. In some sense, it brings people in close connection with God. As the writer Lelevere has put it, It says, an oath throws into relief the solemn seriousness and efficacious power of life and words of men when brought into vital connection with God. The Hebrew, the Hebrew's sensing when God was near, could with joy make an oath before the presence of God. There was a time when Azariah goes to Asa and he speaks to Asa. It was in the days when Israel had been without a teaching priest in the days in which there was no peace with God or with with the people because God had troubled them with adversity and with the nations and they had entertained idols and accumulated them. And Azariah goes and speaks with Asa. And here was a word from God. And through this word from God, which was speaking truth to his people, the people sensed God was near. And what goes on next in 2 Chronicles 15 tells us then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all of their heart and with all of their soul. And then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice with shouting and with trumpets and ram's horns. And all of Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all of their heart and sought Him with all their soul. And they found, He was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest from all around. See, the covenantal structure was a structure where God draws near in that relationship. And as they renew and take vows to the fidelity to the Lord. The Lord is connected with these things in such a way as presence draws near and the people shout and rejoice for the delivery and the great truth that God is doing because this is what God had promised through His covenant if they are faithful. O's and vows, see, will bring God near to a situation and there's a connection made. That's why lawful oaths and vows are only in the name of God. That is why the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, is primarily about this very thing in taking lawful oaths and vows. And when we call upon the name of the God and we then come into an agreement with even our fellow man in the name of God, we bring him into the situation with us. He draws near unto us there. And all the reason why we have to keep our word, we have put ourselves then in the place of calling upon God to bless us if we keep it and to curse us if we don't. Good intentions is not what God is suggesting. He is saying execution and faithfulness to this will bring my blessing. Good intentions, however, but a failure in it will bring my curse. Therefore, do not enter this rashly. This is all the reason we need to keep our word. Because we put ourselves in the place of God's blessing and God's curse. When we take our baptismal vows, we put ourselves in the place of God's blessing or a curse. We bring Him near into the situation as we look to what God has done for us in Christ and we are baptized and we then look back upon our baptism. We know that God blesses us in this. That's why we call it a means of grace. But if we are not faithful to the vows of our baptism, he brings the curse upon us. And if we break the covenant with God and depart from the living God while having the waters of baptism upon our head, and depart from Him, never to return, our judgment before Him in the great day of judgment will be far more severe severe than those who have never known Christ, than those who have never been baptized, and we will find the severity of God's wrath upon us much greater than those who have never heard. sometimes we are placed under an oath and the obligation and responsibility is the oath that our fathers have taken and we cannot be unfaithful to those things. Classic example is with Joshua and the Gideonites and they came and feigned who they were and they were able to get Joshua to make a covenant with them not to destroy the Gideonites and they were deceptive in it. But Joshua entered in that covenant, even though they were deceptive, and they did not release Joshua, nor Israel, and the fathers far after Joshua died to make good on that covenant. And if they did not, God would not bless them. In fact, He would bring a curse. See. We bring our children to baptism. There are oaths that we take, and then that puts them even under obligations of this great covenant faith. But do we not want our children to be blessed in the gospel? Absolutely. Is it not worth the risk? It's not a risk if we are trusting in God's promise, and He has affirmed it with an oath, and He has confirmed it in this baptism. And therefore, as we declare what great things God has done, our children are obligated to believe it. By the way, every man is obligated to believe it. But our children have a great privilege and a grace to them to do so. Now, when Jonathan and David took a covenant with each other, David took an oath with Jonathan... And Jonathan was concerned about his posterity and wanted David, after Jonathan was gone, to make sure that his posterity was blessed and he would remember his house. And David said, I will. And David did that, not only because he loved Jonathan, but because he believed that in the name of God, when they took this covenant and made this oath together with one another, that God would come along into that relationship and bless David for doing so, which he did. Os and vows are very much a part of the covenant life of God and His people and with God's people, with each other, before the face of God. It is the sphere where truth in this world, it, it, it is the sphere where truth lives in a world where falsehood abounds. Covenants characterize God's people. So we can see the advantage of taking oaths and vows. They bring God near. They put God in connection with what we say, commitments we have made. Now that sets the context for the abuse that Jesus was addressing when he comes to this fourth of the six illustrations in the sermon and he was clarifying the true meaning of the law. The error against which Jesus was speaking here when he says, And you have heard that it said, but I say unto you. You have heard. You have been indoctrinated with something that is not true. Jesus was not coming to change the law. He was not coming to give a new law. He was coming to clarify and to bring forth the truth of that which has been from the beginning. But that is not what the scribes and the Pharisees have been teaching. That is not how they grew up, being indoctrinated. And that is not what the people of the time were believing. They were believing something about the law that was really not true about the law. In verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to, the, to those of old. In other words, this interpretation has been around for a while. You shall not sw- swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. The Pharisees had concocted a scheme whereby they could make oaths in order to benefit from the blessings of them, but they did it in such a way that they would not have to fulfill them if they did not want to. While they justified themselves in this practice, it was really, in the sight of God, perjury. They were deceiving themselves, thinking that they could have the blessings of God upon them, when in fact, the very curse of God was upon them, to the extent that their own deceptive hearts could not even see the God of truth before them declaring what was right. So they made a scheme up. How can I take an oath and enter a vow in such a way that you will believe what I'm saying, and yet, if I need to, I can get out of it. Is that not the American way? Let's not be overly committed, or let's just say something. It's very much like when I grew up, there was this way in which children would interact, which is the way the Pharisees acted, and a lot of us act. Some of you don't can't even do that anymore. I promise, and blah, 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 blah. Right? Oh, but I had my fingers crossed. You didn't have your fingers crossed. Well, I had my toes crossed. Whatever it was, we came up with these little schemes that we could justify not having to come through on that word which we promised because something else was going on at the same time, which in our minds justified the reason for breaking our word. That's exactly the abuse that was going on with the Pharisees and the interpretation that they had now inserted upon Scripture and that they had grown up with over against what Jesus is clarifying here. And what the Pharisees taught was really a system of oaths which made a mockery out of oaths. The next few verses gives us some of that context that helps us to understand that this is exactly what was going on. But then verse 34, but I say unto you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now the pharisaical malignancy, the distorting of the truth, was done by an imbalanced emphasis. And this is a problem that we have, that we have to be careful of, is taking something and giving a particular emphasis or a weight to one part at the expense of another that it distorts the true meaning. The traditionalists here have shifted the emphasis and have distorted the truth. Now, for instance, Numbers 30, verse 2 says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to repay it. Deuteronomy 23 21. It's not saying it's bad to do that, you just better be better be good on it. <clears throat> but there was a slight change that crept in. that began to imbalance. An oath sworn to the Lord must certainly be kept. That's how this goes. But on the contrary, an oath made in connection with which the Lord was not expressly mentioned was of lesser significance. Just a slight deviation. I swear by heaven, which is in some ways, in the Jewish framework, in the way he thinks about it, an implication and a reference of God. In fact, in the book of Matthew, the most common phrase for the kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. Over in Luke, he says the kingdom of God. We're not talking about two different kingdoms. We're talking about the same thing with a different emphasis, but the Jews often would use heaven as a replacement for the name of God. But how close the approximation is and how associated it is, it is a, a, a slight step removed. God never really told them that they had to do that Swap, but in reverence and honor of God's name, they did that, and so now I can swear by heaven. If I swear by heaven, and I'm not really swearing by the name of the Lord specifically, and it's of lesser significance, it's kind of like almost crossing my fingers. Or if I swear by the earth. Or maybe I would just swear by Jerusalem, which is God's golden city, or swear by the temple, or swear by the altar, which is really a holy place within the temple. So I have different degrees of different capacities of which I can then attach a particular oath which is lesser significant than swearing by the name of God. And therefore, it gives me a little more foot in the door of not quite being as serious or not quite as severe in order to get out of it. Now, this was illustrated in Matthew 23. And if you have your Bibles and want to turn there with me, I'll read verse, beginning of verse 16. Matthew 23 is that great chapter in which Jesus is giving all the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says in chapter 23, verse 16, "'Woe to you, blind guides, who say, "'Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing.'" But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Now, see, this is exactly what's going on. This is the commentary for Matthew chapter 5. There's only one lawful oath and vow, and that is in the name of God. That's what he said from the beginning. But now, attached to it, there are these other kinds of things, so that whoever swears by the temple, we can discount that. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, now that, that's something. And Jesus says, fools and blinds, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, they can say, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, now he's obliged to perform it. You can already see here that those who are swearing by heaven and earth and the temple and the altar, see... The commentary here is if you swore by the altar, that's, that's really nothing. We can get out of that one But if you swear by the gift on the altar now nah, You've got to do that. They made this man-made system of rules that some of lesser and some of greater and some of which they could get out of and feel that they were not under perjury. He says in verse 19, fools and blinds, which is greater. The gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it, and he who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And what he's saying back in Matthew chapter 5 is he's saying, don't swear by Jerusalem and don't swear by the earth. In other words, whatever you swear by, just know that ultimately all things are God's and you are under oath and obligation To keep whatever you say. Because that is the world of the kingdom of truth. And that's the emphasis that Jesus is really bringing out here in this sermon. It is antithetical to the way of the Christian to try to find ways not to keep his word. It is contrary to the kingdom of light to find falsity and deceptions and Ways that we can justify perjury and yet not feel guilty of it. The Pharisees believed that if they swore by certain things that they were not under obligation to keep their vows and they began to devise loopholes to justify perjury. In a world that is given over to lying and cheating and where God entered into the affairs of this world with covenants and vows to affirm His truthfulness and trustworthiness, of all that he was declaring to man, you can begin to see how heinous it was for the Pharisees to take principles of oaths and vows and turn them on their head, making some system where they could break them and justify their perjury. It is that kind of action that shows the nature of their wicked and deceitful heart and why Jesus in John chapter 8 calls them sons of their father, the devil, who is the father of lies. Now, folks, what Jesus is really getting at when he says, you need to let your yes be yes and your no, no. And whatever's greater than this is of the wicked one. What he's getting at is truth. Are you a man and a woman of truth? Truth is sacred, and our speech should always honor truth. The way we live in honesty, integrity of speech reflects our Lord himself. Perversions, distortions, looking for ways to get out of it, not to be committed to our word. These kinds of things distort the very nature of our God who has saved us out of that world into the kingdom of light. And we can't go making up our own rules and systems and finding loopholes in order to justify the guilt of perjury. What Jesus is forbidding is calling upon the name of God in ordinary conversation and trifling occasions and that swearing by that which is really not God. William Hendrickson said, What we have here is the condemnation of a flippant, profane, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oath used in order to make an impression or to spice up daily conversation over against this evil, Jesus commands simple truthfulness in thought, word, and deed. What he's teaching us is honesty and integrity that displays his son. This should be the character. You should not have to go swearing or I promise showing me both your hands, that they're not behind their back where your fingers crossed, Because the nature of our character is one who adorns and loves the truth. Are there appropriate times to take oaths and vows? Yes, but rare are they. Severe are they. And so careful should we be. He's not telling us not to take any oaths or vows, we do so even when we go and marry our wife and our spouse of the covenant. By covenant, you have to take a vow and an oath. We do so by the very nature of calling upon God to save us because we enter into an oath and a vow to, that we promise fidelity to His covenant by the grace of God that He has shown to us. But those oaths and vows that we do take before the face of the God, and on rare occasions, they should be rare. And when they are made, we must not fail to keep them. But in everyday life, of which Jesus is getting at here, our word needs to be characterized by truthfulness. You shouldn't have to go to somebody and they ask you a question and you say... Well, the truth of the matter is. because every word that comes out of your mouth should be the truth of the matter is. Our everyday speech, how we present, how we communicate, what we say, what we reveal, always needs to be in accord with what is real. Now, little white lies are neither white nor they are they little. They are perversions of what is true. Distorting the facts of a situation are dishonest. Embellishing beyond the details of what is true is not a yes, yes, and a no, no that Jesus is here commanding. Honesty is when one's speech conforms to what is real so that his words reflect what is true. He reveals what is true. And we all fall short of this, but you certainly don't want to be characterized by this. If you're characterized by one whose words is not consistent with what is true, then others will not trust what you say. If you do not accurately depict what is true, you are not living up to this character of truth. Do you embellish stories or do you embellish the facts? Do you embellish matters of life? Do you distort or slant or emphasize life in such a way that biases people's opinions do you have a tendency to think that they can't really trust what you say because of the character do people look at you with when you speak they're always thinking I need to take that with a grain of salt Because I'm not sure it's squared up with the truth. I know people, not one, not two, I've known people who were such chronic liars. Some were so in order to get attention, and from an early age, because they were somewhat outcasts in their own mind anyway that they began embellishing little stories. And they began telling lies. And this became a habitual practice in their life, and they did this to such a degree that quite unknown even to them, they began believing their own lies. I know of a particular man of whom I'm thinking, he began to live in quite another world, a world that was not a true world. He started off with the little white lies that he knew was not true and then he saw how people responded and the attention he got and the 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 spice that they added and the lies got bigger and bigger and he got used to defending those lies and he lived in a system of deceit to the degree that he himself began believing very outlandish stories that even when evidence and hard evidence were given to express the falsity of his claims, he would not believe them. I know women who out of fear have conjured up thoughts in their heads who after time began to believe the very thoughts that they were fearing And after hard evidence comes to show that there is not any veracity to that which you fear, they would not believe that which they had conjured up because they were deceived and were being deceived. But see, that's, that's the system that the world lives in. That's the system of the world. What I've mentioned in a couple of examples is not rare example. This is how the world lives. It is being deceived. They are under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world is under this sway. Who is the father of lies? The master of deceit? The Bible says liars will not make it into heaven. Liars and dishonest people are not necessarily cognizant of their problems. Deceived people are not necessarily understanding that they are being deceived. But all lying and dishonesty is not always from a deliberate malignancy or ill intent from the one giving it. He simply may be regurgitating that which he believes which may be a lie. It can be in some ways, may I say, quite ignorant, but is nonetheless dishonest. Paul says he was the chief of sinners who persecuted the church, but he did not do it in a malignant, malicious manner, although it was very malicious in his actions. He says, I did in ignorance. God had mercy upon me. But he was living a lie. He was believing a lie. He believed that what he was doing was serving God and casting stones and confirming what happened to Stephen. But there's a corollary character that Jesus is implying here, and that is the character of integrity. Integrity is when one's life conforms to the truth and God's ethical principles. We say that one has character or integrity if he does what he says he's going to do. We all fall short on this. But if your life is so characterized in not doing what you say you're going to do, you lack integrity is what we say. If you give your word, but more often than not, you don't come true on your word so that people begin to realize that this is characteristic of you, they will not trust you. This is a man who lacks integrity. His life is not true to the ethical system that he embraces or says he embraces. When we look for loopholes in a system in order to get around what is right, when we distort the reality or the intent of the ethic before us, we do not have integrity. When we have a principle that is before us, but our application of that principle does not actually conform to the reality of the principle, that's not integrity. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Your life is not honest. Oh, I believe in principle, but I disagree with you in application. That's a fair statement. So give me an application of the principle that conforms to the principle in truth. Hypocrites have no integrity because their lives do not conform to what they make themselves out to be. Hypocrites are actors. The very nature of the word has to do with acting. Acting is playing a role. It's playing a part. I'm really expressing to you someone I'm really not. Jesus said to a world lost in darkness and lies and death, he says, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Ultimately, Jesus is saying that our word and life need to be characterized by truth and integrity. You only come to God through Jesus, who is the truth. He is the way out of darkness into light. And he is the way of life out of the death of deceit and lies. Christians are true people. We are to worship God in spirit and truth. We are people who are of the truth. We follow the truth. We live the truth. We love the truth. We are people that should be good to our word and be characterized by characterizing things accurately. We want what we say and how we live to be consistent with what we believe. Proverbs 10, 9 says, He who walks in the integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were perverting the ways of truth and not walking in integrity, looking for the loopholes in order to justify perjury. And that's why Jesus says in everyday life, your life needs to be true. It needs to be one of integrity. It needs to be yes and yes and no and no. And we need to believe when you say yes, it's yes. And when you say no, it's no. The righteous man walks in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. But unlike the scribes and the Pharisees who learned a system of perjury and a system that they could justify things, their children grew up as little Pharisees and their children grew up as little Pharisees so that the things that you have been heard, told of old, the things that you've been believing for generations are not true. Jesus says. May God deliver us from that. From that generational sin of excusing things or justifying or finding ways out or the loopholes. May Jesus guide us with His Spirit to walk in the truth and to be people characterized by the truth so that others might believe our word and our lives and they themselves come to a great loving relationship with the God of truth. May God have mercy upon us and help us all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is with thy truth you have saved us. We live in a world and so you had to give us the truth. We believe lies and so you confirm it with an oath that this is true and a matter of fact. And we have seen time and time again, you do not fail in what you have promised. Your faithfulness is true. You are a God that cannot lie. And over and over again, we see that you are true to your promises. You are true to your curses. You are true to your blessings. You are true to what you have said in your word. And one day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that is true. We pray that we might stand there, cloaked in his truth and his righteousness, desiring for all truth to be sifted and exposed and manifested in our lives and all falsehood put away. Lord, we desire that this day as the God of truth does declare his word of truth and works his truth in us and through us. And we pray you would cloak us in this truth, and may what we say be consistent with what is real. May our lives be lies of integrity. May people rely on what we say. May you make us to be people of truth. So keep our lips from speaking lies. Keep us from guile and deceit. And make us to be people who cherish and love our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.